Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from ATP Crypto, and I'm talking to Zen and Capron, who's the founder and director of Capron Asia. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Thank you for coming on. We were talking before we started recording. Like You've probably just arrived home, just got off a plane, and I think this is kind of the life we have chosen for ourselves, and that is being what I'll call properly busy, not too busy which means we're not really in control of our time, we're properly busy, which just means there's a lot to do. Yeah, yeah, I think it's exciting. I mean, everything that we're, we're talking about today and, and just the, the dynamic market that we're in in Asia is, is really the place to be. And it's an exciting, exciting market from China to Southeast Asia to Singapore, Australia. I mean, there's so much happening. Um, so just being part of it keeps you busy and, and keeps you interested. Yeah, I mean, look, Graham and I like to talk. Graham's my partner in this business, right? And Graham and I like to talk about the fact that Asia matters and wow. It's never mattered more than it has today. Um, where are you from originally? Yeah, so I was um, I was born in Ottawa, Canada, okay. um, and, I, and I lived there until I was about uh, four, and then moved to the states, um, and then grew up in Virginia, New Jersey, New York. Um, so, kind of half American, half Canadian. Um, Fair enough. And, North and, American and, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Slight differences between the two, but yeah, um, a lot. <laughs> certainly a, a citizen of both. <laughs> Wow. Um, and how long have you been? You're in China now, right? You're, so you're taking this call from Shanghai, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Um, so I've been here since uh, about 2004. Um, so just over 13 years now. Wow, that's a long time. So why don't, mm. we, why don't we back up and talk about what Capron Asia does, what your interest is in the financial world, and then we'll move forward into some other stuff that's related to traditional finance, but maybe slightly separate from it. So why don't we start there? Sure. So um, I'll give you a, a bit of personal background as well Please. to kind of set the stage. So I, uh, <laughs> for undergraduate, I studied computer science at Syracuse University in the U.S. And while I really enjoyed computers, I realized I didn't want to be programming them all day. Right. Um, even though that time, kind of when I graduated in 98, was around the first uh, dot-com dot bubble. But um, so around the time, I mean, computer scientists were in relatively high demand, but I, I took a job with Citibank. And, and the reason I took that job is because it was within the technology area within Citibank. So it was, we were able to kind of apply the technology concepts and ideas that we learned to a kind of a real business environment. And it offered the opportunity to travel internationally and work internationally. So I started off in Citibank in New York. Um, and then I spent uh, six months in London a year and a half in Switzerland, another six months in London, and then two years in Portugal. And that was all within the IT area within Citibank. So when I graduated, I was the head of technology for Citigroup in Portugal. So basically, uh, you know, in 2003, it wasn't really FinTech, it was financial technology, which basically meant anything that plugged into a wall was technology. Uh, and our group was responsible for it, which was difficult to explain that a copy machine really wasn't financial technology, but it was still... <laughs> It was still in our remit. Right. Um, I'm, so, only, I'm only laughing because if you know anything about my background, right, I was in global finance for something like 25 years and fintech was just something we did every single day. Like there was no way we could have done our jobs without technology and we were in finance. So we never considered it fintech until we left and then somebody said, we're starting this new thing. We're going to use computers to do finance. And we just thought, okay, great. Sure. Let's do that. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. I yeah, interrupted and it, you. And it, and, it, and it's really changed. I mean, um, you know, Massive. during that time, we we worked on, you know, the, the foundations kind of virtualization, which is one of the foundations of cloud computing. Right. You know, we're doing very basic. It, it was it was amazing to see when you look back at the technology that was in place that was keeping Citibank running in 2003. We did an audit in Portugal of all of the applications, the quote applications that we had within the company. Yeah. And we had something like for a 150 person branch, we had 200 applications. I'm not surprised. And when, when you dig into these applications, many of them were just an Excel spreadsheet with some formulas that did some calculations. <laughs> but, you know, that was that was what held the bank together, you know, at that point. And now, of course, it's advanced, uh, you know, significantly from that. But it, it's it's amazing to see the back end of banks. It makes you really uh makes you really think about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies when you, when you, when you think about when you're leaving your money with some of these institutions. Um, I, th I think you and I could probably talk about Citibank. I worked at Nikko City in Tokyo for a little bit more than a year in the portfolio trading group. I ran the portfolio trading team at, at Citigroup in, in Asia. And you want to talk about multiple systems. Yeah. 
and fintech. Yeah. We can talk about that forever. <laughs> but you know, I, I really enjoyed the time at Citibank, awesome. and, and, awesome. and that really set the stage. You know, yeah. it gives. The, the bank at the time, especially, it was really it was flying high, and uh, still is today. But you know, especially around that time. Um, so basically, my my time came to an end there in Portugal, and uh, I decided at that point that I wanted to go back and do an MBA because I wanted to be more on the business side of technology. Got it. Uh, so I left the bank in 2003 and went to INSEAD. Okay. Uh, in in France uh, for most of the time, and then I spent a couple months in Singapore. And that two months in Singapore that I spent there was really the first, well, it was the first time that I'd been to Asia and the first time that it really kind of opened up my eyes to what was happening wow. in Asia. So during that trip, we went to Indonesia and Thailand and, and obviously Singapore where the, where the campus was. And that was kind of an eye-opening experience. So when I went back to France to finish off the degree, that was still in the back of my mind. And that was really driving um, a lot of the kind of the job search that I was doing. And after, after, you know, reaching out to a lot of people and, and a lot of interviews, I was lucky enough to get a role with Intel, uh, looking wow. after the Asia Pacific financial services, marketing, sales and marketing group. So basically, you know, how did we take chips and sell them to banks? And they gave me the option of where I wanted to be. Uh, so Bangkok was one of the options, Shanghai or Beijing. Um, and I was, I had heard so much about China up until that point. It really came down to Shanghai or Beijing. And then after speaking with some friends, uh, you know, Shanghai made sense. Um, so I came came to China in 2004. I worked at Intel for a couple of years. Their focus shifted away from the financial industry to more of a horizontal approach. Um, and so since my expertise at that point had all been in financial technology, I, I decided to... Um, uh, take a, a very favorable severance package that they were offering for voluntary redundancies right. and set up Capron Asia. And really what we do is help technology companies or financial institutions understand the market in Asia. Um, so we publish research reports on various different topics in the industry. We consult with companies and we produce content for companies to to help them kind of raise awareness increase their understanding and successfully execute in the financial industry in Asia, whether that be a tech company that's selling to a bank or a bank that's, you know, just trying to be successful in the market that they're in. And is that mostly China focused or is it pan Asia, meaning anywhere from, I guess, sort of the edge of Australia all the way to India? Yeah. So we, um, we initially started in Shanghai in 2007 and okay. Clearly, at that point, it was very much a China focus. So we were doing some kind of outsourced work for clients. And then um, our first project actually in China was with a Motley Fool, uh, which was quite a cool project looking at investor um, retail investor trends in China. And then gradually, as, as we built up the business, we started to expand outside of China. So uh, we have an office in <coughs> here in Shanghai. Uh, and an office in Singapore, and somebody's looking after India from a remote office. So our business is still probably about sixty to seventy percent China focused, but we do have a, a growing Asia business as well. So the Motley Fool is actually a really interesting publication and business in and of itself. Right? I mean, they've been around now for I'm going to guess fifteen years, but they probably are one of the first people that started to take a. I would say a different look and a different tact at looking at like finance, not just, you know, obviously they started in the United States, I believe, if I remember correctly. And it's interesting to me that they were looking, were you talking about the retail business or the, in China with them? Did I, did I miss that properly? Or? Yeah, because around that time, so looking back at 2007, 2008, I mean, the, the average and, and potentially still today, I mean, the markets here in China are heavily retail driven. Yep. So there are deployments. 60, 70% is retail driven. And so that they, there's not a lot of investor education, at least at that point, there wasn't a lot of investor education around that. So Molly Fool was really looking at potential partnership opportunities and, and, and to come in and kind of educate uh, the market around um, uh, investing in, in the stock market. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I used to read them when I was <clears throat> working for obviously for Goldman Sachs and for Morgan Stanley, but I haven't looked at their stuff in a long time. I just wonder what they learned from the type of stuff that you were telling them and what they, you know, what changed from, from what you, you gave to them. 
Well, you know, I think the, the retail investors here, so we, one of the first studies that we did and um, one of the reasons that we worked with The Motley Fool is our first research report at Capra in Asia in 2007 was uh, interviewing 600 retail investors in the Shanghai stock market. Now, 600 is by no means statistically relevant. Completely understand that, but we just wanted to get a flavor of what people were thinking. Fair and enough. so we asked them a number, we asked them a number of questions about, you know, why you're investing in the market, how you're investing in the market, what you think for the future. And it was really interesting. I mean, we, we kind of expected people to say, oh, they're getting, you know, they're picking their stocks based on lucky numbers or what their, what their maid tells them or any of these things. But it, it actually, and, and there's some survey bias, of course, when you're being asked where you're investing, you may be, less likely to say you're picking by lucky numbers. But a lot of people said fundamentals and, and basic understanding of the stock. And, and I think you still see that today in the, the investment habits of the Shanghai investors. I mean, obviously, they're outside of the stock market. They're investing in a lot of other things like, like real estate and companies internationally. But if you look at the equities market, when they invest overseas, they really invest in things that they know. So they invest in the Alibabas, the Baidus, the Tencents that are listed in offshore markets. And that's really the understanding. And I think the, the flip side of that is portfolio management and the idea of, you know, having a balanced portfolio to be able to, uh, you know, a certain amount of fixed income, a certain amount of equities, a certain amount of cash. That is really only starting to catch on now, I think. So the the idea of portfolio management and, and kind of wealth management on a on a both mass mass market and mass affluent scale is is starting to pick up a lot here in China. So I think you know, there are some other companies that have gotten involved in kind of that investor education space right. that are have similar models to to what Motley Fool was looking at, uh, certainly at the time. So two questions. I'll probably let me ask them separately. Right. But can you talk about what the biggest difference is? So your first report published in 2007, it's now 2017. There must be massive secular changes, not just in China, but in the entire Asian region. I know it's a big question, but. Can you just kind of characterize maybe three big points that have changed a lot in the last 10 years? Well, I think so. Some of these are financial industry related and some not. I think yeah. the, the biggest one, the biggest one for me is mobile penetration. Um, I mean, that serves as the basis for so much of what's happening in, uh, you know, Southeast Asia down there in Thailand. Yes. Uh, in China, certainly in Japan and other markets around and so I think the increased um, digitization is is really one of the big changes. That has led to financial inclusion. Um, we did a report earlier this year with the United Nations Better Than Cash Alliance. And so the Better Than Cash Alliance is, is a um, corporate-sponsored section of the United Nations that focuses on digitization of cash. And so they look at a number of, a number of um, characteristics and ways that it helps economies and uh, so they, you know, financial inclusion, transparency, safety, women's economic empowerment, uh, all of these things. And, and so when you look at what mobile phones have enabled and what that's done for a market like China, it's pretty incredible because it allows people to China doesn't really have a problem with unbanked in north of 70 percent of the population are banked. But not all of these people are able to get financial services from their bank, right. whether that be lending or um, uh, well, any forms of credit or deposit or wealth management products. So these, these mobile platforms that have developed around there have really increased the financial inclusion. So I think mobile has enabled financial inclusion. And then I think the other thing that's interesting is, is well, this relates into fintech as well, is the regulator's approach to how this is changing the industry. Because we look at what's happened in China with fintech as, as the regulator's kind of taking this wait-and-see approach because a lot of these, and this kind of goes back to what my definition of fintech is. I mean, we've, as you mentioned, I mean, we've both been in the industry for a long time, and right. technology has always been a part of that industry. So financial technology has already existed. I think this new iteration of the, the fintech, so to speak, is the use of technology to disrupt existing business models. And so I think the, you know, these platforms have already disrupted significant, uh, speaking to China, just because it's a great example and it's the one that I know the best. I mean, it's, it's really disrupted the way that people live their lives. And I know many of the people you've had on your podcast have talked about this, but, you know, the, the amount of times that I use Alipay, WeChat Pay, uh, the shared bicycle apps, the uh, food delivery apps in one day, it's incredible. It is. And that's though, right? all. Yeah, yeah, but that's been enabled by the regulators as well. You know, the 
Alipay was launched in 2004. We saw the first kind of licensing around payment platforms in 2010, 2011, but we didn't see regulations around payments until 2016. And why is that? Well, to a large extent, these, these payments really helped the industry. You know, they helped solve an issue in the industry. And so that's kind of an interesting, I, I think that's kind of one of the third points is the regulator's involvement in this to kind of guide and direct what's happening uh, within, well, more specifically around fintech and fintech developments. Yeah, I mean, I think you've brought up some, for me, some really fascinating points. And maybe the most is, I want to go back and talk about mobile and startups and stuff in a second, but this concept of taking a wait-and-see attitude to regulations is actually something that's very, seems very China-specific to me in the sense that the Chinese government seems to have made, and you tell me if I'm wrong, right, because I'm often wrong, but the Chinese government seems to have made a conscious decision to say, you know, we've had a lot of sort of government-controlled or government-regulated industries for a while. Let's just let them go a little bit. Let's see what happens. Let's see what kind of innovation takes place. Alipay is the perfect example of this. And, you know, we'll just watch it like we would watch a child in the sense that let's give it freedom or not take away its freedom. And barring, you know, really bad actors coming into the marketplace, allow it to develop in a way that we may or may not understand or anticipate. And then when it becomes like fully developed, say, okay, we kind of like the infrastructure and the framework that's been built around this. Now let's make sure that we maintain this with the proper regulations. And sometimes that takes two years, sometimes it takes 12 years. But it seems like a really forward-thinking way to attack and allow like innovation to take place in, in the financial world. And I think we're going to see that, and you tell me what you think as well, in sort of the insurance space as well, mm. which is also ripe for you know, the, the influx of mobile applications that help people get, um, what, do you, what do you call it, the financial inclusion or included in, in sort of the, the um, <clears throat> excuse me, the insurance space too. Does, does all that make yeah. sense? You know what I mean? So that they're allowing this to take place over time because they don't necessarily know what the right regulatory framework, and rather than jamming something in, they're saying, this seems to be working, let's see how it develops. Yeah, I think you're completely right on that. The only, the only thing I would differ on is, you know, how forward-thinking they were around this happening. I think it did take people by surprise to a certain extent, but, you know, you, although it did, and although that penetration increased very rapidly around mobile payments, you know, shifting or payments in general shifting towards digital, I think their reaction once they kind of saw what was happening was definitely wait and see, you know, how much of that was predicted. And certainly, you know, when you look at the Chinese government's five-year plans, technology has always been a key part of that. And and every year it gets or every every five years when it's re, redone, it's it gets more sophisticated. So, you know, we're looking at AI and blockchain now. Right. You know, I, I think certainly the government has seen technology as being an enabler for many, many different industries. And so uh, within the financial industry, you know, it's it's kind of an enviable place to come from. Because if you look mm. at the U.S., like if you want to set up a, a PayPal in the U.S., if you want to compete with a PayPal, you have to go state by state to get approval because you're a money transmitter. Right. Um, and that, you know, that's just one regulation amongst all of the financial industry regulations in the U.S., China, because the market is relatively, it's it's a little bit newer. Mm. It's 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 a little bit easier to. It's it's not so much in the U.S. It's kind of opening up the regulations to allow some of these fintechs to do their job. In China, it's creating the regulations around the fintechs once they've already done their job. And so I think that's a unique difference is that because the regulations here aren't as established, then it's easier for the regulators to take that wait and see approach and then appropriately regulate on the back of that. Yeah, I mean, I would also make the case that because there are no existing, and that's redundant, but vested interests in that space, at least at the initiation of some of these new technologies, that there's no lobbying and there's no sort of mechanism to lobby the central government necessarily. And again, I'm, I'm a neophyte when it comes to knowledge of the sort of local microsystems there, but because there are no, there's no one to protect, right? Well... Well, yeah, kind of true. I mean, tell me, right? I don't you, know. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the banking system in China um, is one of the, well, one is, was one of the most centralized uh, right. parts of the Chinese economy. I mean, initially it was the four big banks, it became the five big banks, and right. now there's now there's city level banks and, and joint stock commercial banks. But <clears throat> when you look at those state owned banks, 
they had very thick profit margins for many years. Sure. And that was down, that was down to a couple of things. I mean, first of all, interest rates were fixed as up until uh, a few years ago here in China. So, you know, you're you're lending at a certain rate and you're paying depositors at a certain rate. So you have a relatively um, the spreads are wide, right? Yeah, the spreads are wide, but they're, they're also narrow on either end. So right, the, right. Uh, you know, your lending, your lending band is only about 50 basis points, you know, which you can lend within. So that had a couple of different implications. I mean, the first one was the profitability of the banks was very high. The second one was, is most of that funding went towards state owned enterprises. Because right. if you could lend, if you could lend to Zenon at 7.5%, or you're going to lend to Sinopac at 7%, you know, lend Sinopac, right? Because right. The, the risk, the risk is much less. And so the, the entrenched interests really around, especially around this kind of digital revolution and the fintech side are, are the incumbent banks. And so we're starting to see a little bit of pushback by that. Okay. Um, so earlier this year, the, the government launched what they call the Wanglian platform. And so if you think about China Union Pay, China Union Pay processes all of the card transactions in China. So if you're using a China Union Pay credit card, a debit card, or even a Visa or MasterCard, it'll go across China Union Pay's network and be processed through that. Um, the so so essentially on the digital payment side, Alipay and WeChat Pay had created their own payment networks, so they weren't going across China Union Pay. But now the government has set up this platform called Wanglian, and it is basically pushing or forcing essentially all of the companies to route their digital payments across this platform as well. So, you know, previously it was it was a little bit of the Wild West where Alipay would basically just go around and have bank accounts at all of the different banks in China and created their own payment network. Wow. Completely avoiding China Unipay. Um, and, and Tencent doing the same thing for WeChat Pay. But now the government is pushing back a little bit on that. So we're 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 getting um, the digital payments anyways will be a little bit more centralized going forward. Interesting. And this is the real benefit. So I say this all the time, right? Like I said, I was in India last week for the first time, if you can believe that. It was embarrassing to me to say that, but it's like the first new country I've been to in 20 years because I've been all over Asia prior to that. Um, but one of the points that I made when I was there was I know very little about India because I don't live there every day. Mm. Right? And... I have a general idea in my mind about what is true and isn't true in China. And just based on the 20-minute conversation we've had so far, I'm wrong, which is, always, <laughs> which is always a great reason to talk to people that are on the ground. I mean, that's when I learned the most. And that was actually one of the points that I like to make when I do have these conversations is that it's really important, and I learned this really early on, but it's really important not to generalize from your own experience, particularly if you're outside a market. And that's why I like to make this connectivity. But the stuff you're talking about is actually really insightful and interesting to me because I don't have enough information. Mm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, fintech in the context of startups. You're in Shanghai, so and you're in China in general, but there's so much activity in the startup space. If you just look at SOSV and just all the kind of stuff that happens through the startup ecosystem in China, and I'm wondering how involved you get in that, you've been in that, or how much you want to be involved in that, particularly as it relates to fintech. Yeah, I think the, the challenge for fintech in China, I mean, certainly when you when you look at fintech and you, you measure it against any other market, I mean, the, the valuations of the companies, the the volume of transactions, the total value of assets under management on some of these fintech companies is massive. It is also very centralized. Um, so when you look at mobile payments, as an example, you know, Tencent and Tencent and Alipay between the WeChat Pay platform, the Alipay platform control about 90% of the market, which right. leaves a very small sliver for other players. And similarly, in the asset management space, in terms of online asset management, I mean, those two players are still there, added in Mufax and, and the peer-to-peer lending platforms. So it is very centralized in certain segments of the market. I think what's been interesting over the past couple of years is the consumer finance side, um, you know, individuals' appetite for credit, which is really interesting because China, if you think about China, it's very much a historically a cash-based society. Um, but increasingly over the past couple of years, the, the usage of credit cards, not necessarily the, um, uh, the amount of credit cards that are out there, but the usage of credit cards has increased right. rapidly. Right. And so I, I think that's, that's quite interesting because it's um, the consumer finance space. And then a there's a lot happening around credit as well in the startup space. But the challenges, the challenges for the fintech startups are no different than any other startups in China is that 
Um, you know, you, you, you hear about the ones that are the big success, the bike sharing companies and all of those, but there's, there's a lot that really struggle to compete against some of these bigger players that have a, a real stranglehold on certain segments of the market. Um, what, what, what does it mean though, from sort of a wealth management standpoint, from an automated trading? If you see any of this, if you don't, that's fine. But I'm really curious, right? We see a lot of this coming out of Singapore and some artificial intelligently sort of empowered wealth management systems. I'm seeing a lot of that in Thailand as well, right? So people that are taking assets and using AI and machine learning and not as buzzwords, but as actual technologies to go and manage that. It would seem that with all of the cash and all of the payments that are being generated across the systems in China, right? Whether it's <clears throat> Alipay or WeChat, there's got to be some opening for wealth management or is all that still happening at the big five banks that you talked about? Yeah, so there's a few different things that are happening around that. I mean, the the private private wealth management, so private banking for you know individuals that have north of three or four million U.S. equivalent. Right. I mean that that is still with kind of the traditional players that you would expect, so the large banks in China and some of the foreign banks that provide that service both domestically and offshore. For you know for a long time, if you looked back uh, five or six years ago. The wealth management was very limited. Uh, so if I went to ICBC, I could buy a wealth management product for maybe 10,000 renminbi for, for kind of the, that was the minimum, minimum purchase would be 10,000 renminbi. So about 1500 US dollars, which for the average person is, is a relatively significant amount of money. Yeah. These, these digital platforms, because of a lot of the things that you mentioned, the automated nature of it, the scale of these platforms, they're able to offer wealth management products for a very low entry point. So you about launch the platform and start gaining interest on that. Right. So that kind of access to wealth management products uh, has really expanded over the past couple of years. And really these platforms have what we like to say democratized wealth management for individuals because it opens it up to those people that can, you know, just you're riding a metro and you say, okay, I want to invest $100. And so you just put, put the money into wealth management product and you start gaining interest on that. So I think that that market of kind of individual wealth management products is really well developed and the digital really is the channel for that mobile and buying those buying those products online the challenge with robo advisors or you know kind of yep. that automated and thing is that there aren't a lot of uh first of all the the shanghai market kind of moves because for the reasons that we mentioned before it's it's Retail. not always driven by mentals yep. it's it's often driven by sentiment which isn't a very good platform for investment um, and th there's a lack of ETFs as well. And so most of those robo-advisors, if you, if you look in other markets, they'll be investing in several different ETFs based on what your risk profile is. And right. so ETFs keep the prices low and, you know, it's, it's a little bit more automated around that as well. So that's kind of preventing robo-advisors from really being huge here in China. But, you know, the problems that robo-advisors are facing in China are no different than they're facing anywhere else around the world. I mean, it's a, it's a challenging market, certainly for them now. But, you know, going back to what we were saying before, I think that idea of portfolio management and people having more holistic view of their right. investing is is increasing, certainly. Yeah, it's funny. When you talk about portfolio management to, I would say, the uninitiated, they just think about different types of stocks or different sectors to hold. But I think what you're really talking about is different asset classes. And, exactly. And that's really important for people to understand. Yeah, including including Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, that should be uh, part of everybody's <laughs> portfolio these days as well. Okay. So now you've you've opened a can of worms for me. So you've talked about the democratization of finance, and you've explicitly mentioned Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So we need to talk about the genesis of your idea for writing your book, right? Chomping at the Bitcoin, the history and the future of Bitcoin in China, but also just Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. Do you want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> what the um, like I said, the genesis of writing this book was, and then just we'll get into a more general conversation about the blockchain and cryptocurrencies and the democratization of finance. Sure, sure. So um, we started following Bitcoin in kind of 2013. And, and so in May 2013, was there was a CCTV, which is the government, one of the, well, the government has several CCTV channels, but one of the channels did a documentary on Bitcoin um, in China in May 2013. And so 
started getting more attention from Chinese investors, kind of, well, Chinese speculators, investors, uh, people getting involved in the market around that time. And that, if you remember in 2013, was the, the all-time high of Bitcoin at the time, which went up to just over $1,000. Um, and so around that time, there were a lot of, uh, there were, we were starting to see conferences happen around Bitcoin in Singapore and Hong Kong and a little bit of China. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, around that time, there weren't that many people that were looking at Bitcoin from kind of an objective third party perspective, no. you know, people that were doing research on it. So it would be people that were working for the exchanges that would be quoted. And so increasingly, the, the media kind of came to us for comments on what was happening in the market. And, and that kind of pushed us to expand our knowledge more about what was happening in Bitcoin. And so I, I was just, you know, around the around the end of the year in uh, 2013, a friend suggested, hey, you should you should write a book about your experience and everything that you've seen in China. And so that was really the the genesis of Chomping at the Bitcoin, which was published um, by Penguin in, I guess, about August 2014. Uh, so just over nine months later, um, writing a book is a long process as well as getting it edited and printed. So, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of our first foray into, well, I guess, cryptocurrencies, you would call it, but Bitcoin specifically. And what was the reaction to that book, if you don't mind me asking? Well, when I was writing the book, I was trying to make it because explaining Bitcoin very simply is is sometimes challenging. It's it's probably one of the more difficult aspects of explaining how hashes and nonces and right. how the, the the chain is developed. So what we tried to do in the book is make it very simple for readers, first of all, to get an understanding of um, Bitcoin itself, but then to put it in context. Uh, so one of the first stories in the book was about this miner that I visited. And it was a it was a gentleman who just you know he had one single miner machine, and he had paid for the machine uh, twice over within a month and a half. And that was that was when Bitcoin mining was relatively easy. So you know he was making at, at, at least seven or eight Bitcoin per month um, with this mining equipment at the time. And so he was able to pay back the miner in a short period of time. So it really. I mean, what was really interesting for me about writing a book was the people's stories that we talked to right. and the way that people saw this. I mean, there, there are a number of libertarians that, that feel like this is, you know, the, a way to get away from the existing financial system. And that, that has different meanings, of course, here in China as well, where, where you have the, the, uh, the government that's a little bit more controlling in the Communist Party. So that brought up kind of different feelings for some of the people that were involved in Bitcoin as well. So it was, it's really fascinating to kind of hear their stories and to be able to write about it so, uh, in the book. Yeah, so three years on, right? I mean, if that was in 2014. And, and I, I want to make this point because you sort of glossed over it, but writing a book actually is not a trivial exercise. <laughs> it's just not, right? Just getting all the information. It, takes, it does take time. It's probably like, like you said, a six to nine month process at the minimum, I think. And writing a good book is just really hard to do. So kudos to you for getting that out and writing one on this topic is just really hard because the topic itself is non-trivial. So I just think that's amazing. And I'm wondering if three years after publishing, like what's changed? I mean, mining obviously has become much more expensive, consumes a lot more energy, takes a lot more machinery, and it's become a lot more concentrated as well. I just, I, I want to get my head around what it feels like to be in China when like we said, back in 2013, Bitcoin was trading at $1,000, and now it's almost 18000 It probably broke 18000 for a little bit. It probably broke twenty when I wasn't paying attention, but I think it closed, if it ever closes, at 17009 right, or some such number. I'm just wondering, like, what it how, how does it feel differently now than it did even just three years ago, which feels like a lifetime ago in the context of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? You know, when you're when you're walking down the street, it's kind of like everybody within the space is involved in some inside joke that nobody else understands. <laughs> it kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Because because you know the the average person on the street, um, you know, in China or in the U.S. or anywhere else has you know heard about Bitcoin rising over the past. It's probably just over the past six months that people have really started to pay attention to it. Right. But you know, I think with Bitcoin, and I'm sure we'll get into the cryptocurrencies and blockchain as well. The, the average person doesn't really, I would say, just hasn't been exposed to the potential 
um, game-changing nature of some of these technologies. Well, I mean, the blockchain technology, which is behind you know most of the most of the cryptocurrencies and, and, and Bitcoin itself, you know, the the potential implications for this, which is fine. I mean, that's that's the way that you know, same way that people who banked with Citibank didn't know that half of their infrastructure was running on Excel spreadsheets. Right. You know, there's there's always going to be a back end that people don't know about and don't have to worry about or know about. Um, but it does feel like all of these things are happening and you, you see people, um, you know, I, I've got a good friend who went all in on Bitcoin here in China and basically mortgaged his house, uh, which in Shanghai is no laughing matter because property prices are so expensive here. Right. Almost, almost getting a divorce now, uh, you know, and he did that when Bitcoin was about a thousand dollars. Now, so his his wife is loving him now and that, uh, their, their lifestyle. But you know that that is a very isolated case, and right. for the average person on the street, you don't really see that. And and you know, I think with all you mentioned about the the amount of energy consumption now with all this mining, you know, I, I don't think that really gets the awareness that it, it may in the future if, because. I've talked to three different people today or this week that are talking about mining Bitcoin now because of the price and and some some investors that are putting 10 to 20 million dollars in Bitcoin operations, Bitcoin mining operations. So, you know, there are a lot of implications for this that um, we as a society and as regulators and governments are going to have to to look at, not the least of which is you know, Bitcoin itself, which I think a lot of regulators have looked at but this. This idea of proof of work mining and the amount of electricity that's going across it is is a challenging point, certainly. Yeah, I mean there are a lot, there's a lot of interesting sort of side discussions to have. One of them, obviously, so I participate in a whole host of sort of Telegram chat groups and we not WeChat, but you know WhatsApp chat groups and stuff like that. And even today, it was, I think it was either today or yesterday. I can't remember because time passes so quickly. But somebody was actually talking about a friend of theirs whose wallet, which I probably was online, right, was probably not a USB stick, was probably online, had been hacked to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. I just wonder, like, like I said, like, what does it look like in the context of fintech, in the context of the democratization of finance, right? How do you convince people that it's actually going to be safer to have their money controlled on a blockchain via Bitcoin than it is to just deposit in a bank. And I have my own views on this, which I'm happy to share, but I'm just curious what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis in the conversations that you're having. And then I want to talk later about just sort of an infrastructure that you've set up as well to kind of help people not just understand this, but sort of benefit from it from a business perspective too. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that question about safety though, I, yeah, I struggle with that as well. You right. Know, and with there was a Korean exchange that was hacked uh, either yesterday or the day before and shut down because it was the second time they'd been hacked within one year. And then you know your friend that or the the, the contact that you noticed that um, had his wallet hacked. It's it's a big challenge and it's a new um, it's a new structure and a new way of handling your finances. Um, and I'm I'm not very um, I'm not super. Uh, um, libertarian in a lot of these things, you know. I have most of my most of my money in traditional investments. Well, it, it, it used to be most of my money, but the way the cryptos are going, it's uh, <laughs> it's moving it's that away, right? But you know, I, I I still bank with Citibank, and I still bank with sure, uh, you know our company banks with um, China Merchants Bank and yep. HSBC and all these banks. And you know, I do uh, whilst I do see the benefits of cryptocurrencies in that regard i think one of the challenges is really for me the mom test you know my mom yep. is uh in the u.s she shops at walmart or, or sam's club or jc Penney's or macy's or wherever she's shopping and she uses cash or a credit card just because it's very easy for her to it's just frictionless uh, for her to do that yeah yeah exactly she can understand it it's very easy to use everybody else understands it there's bitcoin you know the the idea of you know oh you know, I need to store my key somewhere. And, and even myself, um, I had and just a, a small, a small amount on a, on a wallet and I right. lost the key for it. And, and so, you know, I consider myself relatively technical. And if for me to lose the key, it made me rethink my personal habits, um, about, you know, how I'm storing some of these cryptocurrencies and, and, you know, privacy in general. And I think shortly after that, I, 
I bought the version of Windows that encrypts my laptop, which um, is going to lose half the people on the call when I say that I'm not on Linux. But there you go. <laughs> or, um, yeah, or on some kind of Unix, at least, right? Yeah. yeah Although, yeah. to be fair, the modern version of Windows is probably based on a Unix kernel at some level, right? So... I guess, yeah, and, and Windows Windows 10 is, is quite good as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do have a Linux laptop just to just to keep the people online that um, <laughs> would be would be looking for that. Uh, yeah, so I think it, it's a new paradigm, and I, and I think it's going to take a while for that to shift. And for merchants as well, I mean, there in China, and in, when I was writing the book, we talked to a couple of different merchants um, who were accepting Bitcoin. And most famously, there was a property company that you could buy property with Bitcoin uh, at one point. Uh, at least they advertised that. So. You know, there's there's challenge behind that, and it's, as you as you mentioned, the friction within that space. You know, for me to move Bitcoin around, I have to, you know, get a USB stick out. Right. I have to put in a password. I have to wait a little while. I have to make sure I have the the address correct. And, and so there's a lot of things that are involved in that. So for me, you know, if I'm just doing a, a local payment, I would just use Alipay or WeChat Pay. Because it's it's just frictionless, and so I think that's one of the big challenges for Bitcoin uh, or any of the cryptocurrencies going forward in the future is how do you simplify it enough such that your mom could use it? Right. I just want to just as a, an anecdote, I, I love this idea of the mom test. Right. So I knew that there was a. I'm just trying to remember what year it was. I bet it was 1997 during the Asian financial crisis. I swear to God, my mother called me, and I was in Hong Kong, I think, at the time. My mother called me and literally said to me, where do you think Hong Kong is going to open today? And I just <laughs> thought, okay, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing but, though, right? It's like, sorry, go ahead. Well, but the interesting thing about that is, and, and so a lot of people are talking about Bitcoin being a bubble and, right. and you know, I, I, have, I have my own kind of views on that and I don't really come down hard on either side, but in all of the previous bubbles that we've seen, there's been assets behind it or there's been something that you can measure behind it. So, you know, the dot-com bubble, pets.com being worth, you know, having a hundred times P ratio. I mean, you can, you can look at the fundamental business behind that and you can say, okay, the company is not worth that much. So it's a bubble because, you know, the, the, the value of the asset underneath is, is, is much, it's much lower than the perceived market value. Right. But with Bitcoin, we don't have that, which is interesting, which is why I kind of push back on the idea of being, this being a bubble because yes, it has increased rapidly over, a short period of time, probably more so than pretty much any other asset in human history. Um, but who are we to say that it's a bubble uh, from that? You know, what what defines a bubble? And I've read I've read some economic texts of people that uh, are are poo pooing Bitcoin and kind of the way it's growing. And and that's one thing I can't get through is that you know I I don't think this is a bubble. And that's not to say that it won't crash next week. But I think for us to look at this and define it as a bubble. So if your maid is asking or if your cousin is asking, I've had some family members and friends ask me about right. it. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that's a sign that it's a bubble because, uh, you know, people are just starting to line up behind cryptocurrencies in general. And I think 2018 will be the year of the institutional investor right. in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And that that will really continue to drive this market forward. Right. So I've done a little bit of math around this. And again, just tell me where my presumptions or my assumptions are wrong. But something at the high end. At least as of a month ago, there was something like 25 million cryptocurrency wallets in the world. Okay, mm -hmm. 25 million. It just sounds like a gigantic number. But in the context of the amount of people that are on the internet, which is about three and a half billion, so half of the world's population, I'm rounding right now. I'm doing this in my head. That's something like 71 or 70 basis points of everybody that's connected to the internet has a cryptocurrency wallet. That just has a wallet. That doesn't talk about whether they're active or inactive whether they actually own any crypto or they've just downloaded a wallet and see what happens. You know what I mean? So from that perspective, <clears throat> 71 base points for people that are uninitiated in what a basis point is. One, you know, <clears throat> sorry, one basis point is 1% of 1%. Did I get that right? So it's like one over 10,000. Anyway, the point is yeah. that it's just such a tiny number of people. And the other thing that I think most people don't understand is that Bitcoin is by design constrained supply. So at one point, you're just not going to be able to make any more of it in a way similar to gold in a way because you can pull it out of the ground. It just gets more and more expensive to a certain extent. At least there's some equivalency that some people can make, but it's naturally constrained. So how can something that has a constraint on it that can't get fixed, that can't be manufactured, be a bubble per se? Uh, it, just that part of it, um, it's hard for me to get my head around as well. And as more and more people become aware of it, 
the supply and demand dynamics for a constrained asset are just going to move in in like more demand and same level of supply. And just like basic economics tells you that that's going to go up in value. And that that increase in value should naturally, I think, accelerate barring unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the, the challenge behind this, and it was interesting, I was at a conference in Seoul uh, a couple of weeks ago, and one of the speakers was talking, a long, long-time Bitcoin um, supporter and somebody who's been involved and has a couple of funds that invest in cryptocurrencies, yep. et cetera. And, and if you look at the original idea behind Bitcoin, it was really you know this peer-to-peer value transmission system, uh, right. electronic cash, essentially. But the Bitcoin itself, um, kind of Bitcoin core, the main fork of Bitcoin, uh, or the original, original Bitcoin, I guess, uh, has, has kind of shifted, you know, from, from a payment mechanism to a store of wealth or value. Right. So it is really becoming the digital gold. I think that was Nathaniel Popper that wrote the book, um, a couple of years ago about digital gold. And so I think that's really, that's really, um, that that's what shifted in the market in my mind is that people are looking at this as an investment product or as a store of value. And if you look at anything else out there in the world, and I've had conversations with my wife around this, I mean, the, the concept of the U.S. dollar, right? So if I've got one U.S. dollar in my in my hand, it says backed by the faith of the U.S. government. And so the the right. the, the argument that I've heard for the value behind that is because U.S. citizens are forced to pay their taxes in U.S. dollars, so that U.S. dollar will always have value, but. It's really, it's about belief and trust. And it's about the belief that that dollar has value. And I can bring that dollar to Bangkok or to Shanghai or to Alabama and I can give it to somebody and I can get something in return for right. that belief, that belief and trust that that's worth something. And I think that's, that's what's the, the criticism that I hear about Bitcoin is that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have belief and trust. It's not a currency. Because it doesn't have government backing. And then I, you know, say, okay, well, what does government backing mean? If you take that dollar to the U.S. government and you give it to the treasury. What do you get? What do they get? Yeah, they're not going to give you anything in return, right? You, you, it's just, it's just belief that that unit, what you're holding has value. And so I think Bitcoin is kind of going the same way, except the group of people, of course, it's that 70 basis points that actually believe that Bitcoin has value and are willing to exchange money for it. And so, you know, that if that expands, then certainly, uh, you know, the value of these cryptocurrencies will continue to rise for the, many of the reasons that you mentioned in terms of constrained supply and, and, and just the demand in general. Right. And, and I mean, when I was younger, the Brazilian real was a currency that was apparently backed by the Brazilian government, which Brazilians had to use to pay their taxes as well. And I know it's not a reserve currency, so it's a different dynamic, but it's been devalued, eliminated, restarted at least in my lifetime, multiple times. I don't know, there's a real concept here that just because a government is in, involved, you can trust it. I think it's in a way going away. There was an article in the New York Times today, I think today or, or yesterday, that talked about technology itself is becoming more and more the default mechanism for trust, mm -hmm. right? And that the blockchain and the Bitcoin that sits on top of the blockchain as a store of value is now becoming more and more trusted because there's technology behind it as opposed to having a government which comes and goes over time. Just the whole concept of it is really interesting, right? And I, I like the way you present this in the sense that, you know, if you take a dollar and give it to the government, what do you get in return? Yeah. Right? And, and yeah. it also, you know, we talked a little bit about the democratization of finance and also, the, we didn't talk at all about decentralization, but I think decentralization itself actually is quite important as well because that means that I don't have to go to any particular government, right? So one of the ways that I look at this, and again, tell me where I'm wrong, is that I can take $1,000 in New York, right, and get on a plane and then land in Japan. And, and to be fair, like unless I exchange that for something else and somebody actually believes that those dollars are real, those $1,000 can't buy me food, they can't pay for a taxi, they can't do anything in Japan because they're not Japanese yen. Now, there may be some hotels that take that money, but again, there are some hotels that take Bitcoin as well. I was in a bike shop in Fukuoka in September, and the owner told me, we take Bitcoin. There's a big Bitcoin sign on the outside. So I struggle to understand what the difference is, except that one is backed by a decentralized technology called the blockchain. The other one's backed by the government, which remember, there used to be a gold standard too, right? You're old enough to understand mm -hmm. that when that went away, people at first were like, whoa, wait a second. 
then what's it backed by? How can I trust it? So they had that same conversation about the dollar too, right? Yeah, yeah. No, so I think I, I, I completely agree with your saying. I, I think the one challenge that we face with a lot of these cryptocurrencies is, you know, we for the past, uh, say, past 50, 50 years or so, we've lived on this this idea of, you know, interest rates, inflation, fractional reserve banking. Mm-hmm. The economy as we know it today is built on certain precepts. And so I think that's a challenge when you look at something like Bitcoin, which is, is by its nature because of the cap supply, a deflationary currency, if you consider it a currency. And so, you know, the ability to expand your monetary supply to overcome, uh, you know, economic slowdowns or contract when things are getting too good to, to control that rate of GDP growth is something that we wouldn't be able to do with a Bitcoin. So, or many of the other cryptocurrencies because they're not, they're not, because the nature of the decentralization, you know, creating more of them involves a, a different method, right? And, sure. and governments could do themselves. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And, and I think that's one of the challenges for governments that are looking to uh, adopt digital uh, currencies as well. Uh, so there's been a lot of talk about China doing an e-renminbi, a blockchain-based currency. Right. Singapore, Singapore's doing this with Project Ubin in Estonia just came out yesterday saying something very similar as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of these markets are looking at that, but one of the key challenges is that is how do you how do you have a decentralized or semi decentralized <laughs> currency that right. you know you can still adhere to the economic precepts that our growth over the past fifty years as a global economy has has adhered to, and so I think that that will be one of the interesting challenges going forward as well around this. Right. I mean, I, again, I, t- I like to take a really long view on this. And I, you know, I don't know the answer to any of these questions. I don't have the answer, right? All I know is what I think happened in the past. Right? So in the olden days, for lack of a better term, you know, some guy with a cow who wanted a sheep would just figure out a way to trade it. And if there yep. was a guy with a cow and a guy with a baby sheep, but that baby sheep was going to grow up to be like a bigger sheep, the guy would write down on a piece of paper, okay, in five months, you're going to give me that baby sheep. Here's my cow today. And that would just became a promissory note. I promise to give you this thing. Right? And there were coins in the interim as well, right? little gold coins, which you could chip off little pieces of and trade those back and forth. right? But it wasn't really governed by a central bank per se. And then over time, that developed into money, which was backed by gold. And I'm fast forwarding through history, right? Very quickly. Very quickly, yeah. But you understand the point, right, is that the monetary authorities, for lack of a better term, and the monetary regime under which we live today is, as you said, relatively new. It's only about 50 years old, which is in the history of mankind's ability to trade goods and services. It's just really new. Yep. And and I I don't know, right? That's why I said I, I don't know the answer, but I wonder if it is the best system or it's just the best system we've had up until now and I wonder where cryptocurrency comes to play in that like I'm I look at coinmarketcap.com every day I'm sure you look at it as well there are a hundred cryptocurrencies here and I'm sure there are more that aren't listed here right and I think in a way it feels to me really similar to the way you know, maybe back in Roman times or pre-Roman times and even in Japan where they had like the warring states and all these sort of different mini countries inside of bigger countries, they all had their own currency, they all probably had some relative value to each other, and yet then they all consolidated into a central place, right? Mm. And in the same way that Europe now has the euro, there's no more Italian lira, there's no more <clears throat> um, Deutschmarks and Spanish pesetas, right? It's all consolidated into euros. Like, I, I'm pretty sure that these cryptocurrencies are going to consolidate into, you know, a smaller group, maybe five, I would say, over time, if they're still around. But and and does Bitcoin become the gold? Like I just, I'm really curious to find out what people are thinking about this, and and that's really why we have these conversations, just to figure out, because I don't know the answer, right? And I'm hoping somebody else does, or at least can tell me what they think, because that part of it is really fascinating to me. Is that maybe we're maybe we know we're at like a tipping point or a changing point or an inflection point where the way we talk about currencies and stores of value and payment systems is really like just about to change or started to change already and we just don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think your point about the coin market cap and the number of coins that are out there, I mean, there's, uh, 
to a certain extent, I mean, shifting now towards the kind of the topic around ICOs. I mean, if you look at the number of these initial coin offerings that are yep. happening around the world, it's yep. there. There's no way that they're all going to be successful. I mean, no way. Just just in the past week, there's been two AI um, companies that are doing the exact same thing in AI. Um, now that being said, you know there was at one point there was a MySpace and a Facebook, so there is competition for sure. many of these things. And many, you know, there's numerous different cryptocurrencies that are focused on privacy or fungibility or you know speed of transfer or whatever it is that they're they're focused on. So they may become the masters of their you know segment of the market, but yeah, I think mean, we're, you know, to a certain extent, we have, well, let's say, two to 300 currencies around the world that are in um, common use. And, you know, that's one per country. I'm not sure if we need a couple hundred cryptocurrencies or if it will consolidate around a couple. I, I, would, I would think that it would, you know, we'll have one that is a store of value, one that is used for, you know, uh, regular payments, and it will probably break out something like that. But it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next um, over the next couple of years around this, for sure. Right. I mean, we definitely haven't had enough time to talk about a whole bunch of things that I really wanted to talk about. We talked about offline, but you know, one of them is this, right? Is that a lot of people when they talk about an ICO, they're like, "Well, we're building an ecosystem, and you can use the coins that we're issuing today to participate in our ecosystem." And I, I kind of think about this. Again, I like to make equivalencies and analogies, and I kind of think about this in the same way I do about, you know, convenience stores, right? So there's Family Mart, there's 7-Eleven, there's this Mart and that Mart, and yet I don't want to have to have a coin for, and, and that's a big logistics system as well, right? So you can talk about that as an enclosed ecosystem, and yet I don't want to have to have a different payment methodology for each one of those things. So then what does that mean for these alternative coins going forward, right? It, to me, it just means massive consolidation. Yeah, or I mean, the other thing that we could see, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with uh, Wang Lian as well, is one of the things that's happened within the financial industry globally is the um, uh, standardization of QR code payment standards. So basically, you know, uh, in, in China, QR codes have been huge for payments. And so a QR code is basically a, a square of dots, yep. different sized dots that represent um, uh, some kind of data behind it. And in China, that's very common for making payments. And so the the new global standards will standardize those QR codes. So in theory, you could, um, and, and this is kind of what we think is going to happen in the future, is that you would have interoperability. Right. So you could be using Alipay and you can make a WeChat payment. You know, if the, if the, if the merchant only accepts WeChat Pay and you only have Alipay, you would still be able to complete that transaction. Now, of course, the payment companies don't want that, but I think eventually that's what we're going to. So I could, I could see there being, you know, if, across the cryptocurrencies that was interoperability, then it would be a little bit easier such that, you know, if you're a merchant, you could just say, we accept cryptocurrency and you can use Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Dash, uh, Ethereum, whatever you want to use to pay, right. we'll accept it. And then just an exchange on the back end takes care of that. And if you could make that as seamless as possible, and there are definitely companies that are working on this, then, then I could see us having, you know, a, a multitude of currencies. But it's the same challenge with blockchain as well. I mean, if we look at the financial industry and their appetite for blockchain technology solutions, we went from that day in 2003 where we had 200 different applications that were all in Excel to today where we have potentially 200 different applications that are all running on different blockchain. Right. And so I think that's the risk that we face in a lot of technology is this this, when it's decentralized, it becomes very created, and then, you know, there's many, many different types for, for every solution. Right. I mean, as long as there's technology, there'll be different forks of technology, right? Like, there are different versions of Linux, there are different versions of Unix, and they can work together, but they're not the exact same thing. And, and look, I, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you to a certain extent. I think you're going to have this coin and that coin, and yet they're all going to be driven seamlessly and frictionlessly by just somebody swiping something over something else without really needing to know. Because today, right, you kind of think, what is the, what's the euro-dollar exchange rate? And you kind of need to know before you travel what it is. And yet, I, and one of the reasons why there's an arbitrage there, like there are tons of reasons why there's an arb, right, and the spreads are really wide. But one of the reasons why is because it's hard to do that exchange. So if the technology itself itself makes the exchange ability and the interoperability easier, then the cost associated with doing that is going to be smaller. The speed with which that, that 
exchange takes place is going to be faster. And then maybe there will be a hundred different coins, but nobody will really care because of the interoperability and the, the ability to just literally go from one ecosystem to another, just like you go from one country to another, and just have that exchange take place really quickly and seamlessly. So sure, I, I get that too. And, and I think that that interoperability is maybe something we can talk about more the next time we have this conversation. Definitely. <laughs> wow. I feel like we covered a lot of ground today. What do you think? Yeah, well, we got all the way from traditional finance to, to cryptocurrencies, which is you know somewhat related, but it's still a long journey. It is. And look, we didn't get a chance at all to talk about Moonshot. So maybe we just leave that for our next conversation. Hopefully you'll come back again and we can talk a little bit about that because I think there's an, there's an interesting conversation to have around businesses that are trying to help other people sort of join the ecosystem, right? And there's a lot of work being done around that. And I think Moonshot Asia is one of the companies that's trying to do that. And I'd like to learn more about it. And I think other people would like to learn more about that as well. Sure. I'd be happy to come back. Okay. Look, I want to say thank you, Zenin, for joining us. Um, this has been really interesting for me and hopefully it's been interesting and fun for you as well. Definitely. Thanks for having me, Michael. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.